I'd like you to turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6. We want to look this morning at verses 5 to 9. Paul dealt with wives and husbands at the end of chapter 5. He dealt with children and parents at the beginning of chapter 6. And now he's going to deal with slaves and masters. And Paul is still dealing with the results of the Spirit-filled life. He gave the commandment in chapter 5 and verse 18. And then he gave us the characteristics of that Spirit-filled life beginning in chapter 5 and verse 19 and running all the way through chapter 6 and verse 9. And so this spirit-filled life manifests itself in all areas of your life, in your marriage, in your family, and now in your work. Paul writes here to slaves and masters. They made up the workforce and the management force of the first century. In fact, Rome had an estimated 60 million slaves. And so in making application to our society today in which we don't have slavery as such... I think it's fair to apply these principles to employee-employer relationships, the workforce and the management force of today. Now, employee-employer relationships today are not, for the most part, really good. Most people, when surveyed, say they're not happy with their job. Employees want more pay, less hours, more benefits, less restrictions. Employers want more production and more profit. On one side, you've got employees crying for their rights and striking. On the other side, you've got employers laying off and downsizing. There's a lot of animosity in the workplace. And this passage addresses that issue. Paul shows us how that even a master-slave relationship can operate in harmony when the individuals are filled with the Holy Spirit. And if that can be true in that kind of setting in the first century, century, then certainly it can be true at your job today. And so as we go through these exhortations, I want you to apply them to your workplace today. Now, first of all, Paul addresses slaves in verse 5. That's the Greek word doulos, bond slaves. The fact that he addresses them at all would be rather shocking to the status quo of that day because slaves were looked on as less than human. Aristotle said, quote, a slave is a living tool just as a tool is an inanimate slave. The Roman statesman Cato said old slaves should be thrown on a dump and when a slave is too ill to work, it's not worth your money to feed him, take six slaves and throw them away because they are nothing but inefficient tools. And so slaves were dehumanized. They were property. They had no rights. In fact, they were under the total control of their masters. He could whip them, imprison them, or execute them. William Barclay records the account of one master, Augustus, who had a slave who accidentally killed his pet quail, and so he had him crucified. And we think we've got it rough when the worst we can get is a pink slip. Slaves had a tough time. And because there was such a large portion of slaves in the Roman Empire, it's very likely that there was also a large portion of slaves within the church. And that explains why when Paul wrote to the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, he said these words, 
For consider your calling, brethren, that there are not many wise, not many mighty, not many noble. God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. He has chosen the weak things to shame the strong. He has chosen the base things and the despised things. God has chosen the things that are not, that he might nullify the things that are, that no man should boast before God. Who were the foolish and the weak and the base and the despised, those who were considered to be not things at all, those were the slaves of that day. And they filled the early church. You say, well, if Paul is writing to them about slavery, then why doesn't he say here that it's wrong? Why doesn't he say you need to establish a moral majority? You need to get a Christian right. You need to rebel against these things, and you need to change the social order. Well, the reason Paul didn't say that is because Paul knew that that was not really the answer to the problem. You see, Paul knew that the problem in man could not be resolved by political and social change because the problem in man was spiritual. And so Paul didn't focus on changing the system. Paul focused on changing the hearts of man. You see, if you change the system and you still have the same rotten, corrupt people with the same rotten, corrupt hearts, then you haven't done much. You've just changed the set of problems. But if you can change the heart of men, then you can cause relationships to work no matter what the social system is. And so Paul's goal was not to make a, quote, Christian social order within the non-Christian world. His goal was to make Christians and then teach them how to live in a Christian way no matter what social structure they lived in. And if in that cultural setting, slaves could be challenged to behave in a spirit-filled manner, and if masters could be challenged to behave in a spirit-filled mass, mat, or manner, then surely you and I can take these challenges to heart as employees and employers today. Now, Paul essentially gives one command to slaves. It's in verse 5. Slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh. That word obedient is the same word we saw back in verse 1 addressed to children. Get under the authority of your masters and listen, respond, do what they say. And interestingly, it's in the continuous present tense. So it literally should read, keep on obeying. When you go to work, you are to keep on obeying your employer. You say, well, what am I supposed to obey? Colossians 3.22 says, Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything. When you go to work, you are to keep on obeying your employer in everything. The only exception would be when they tell you to do something that God forbids. And then you would have to say with Peter and the apostles in Acts 5.29, We must obey God rather than men. And I think that's why Paul specifically defines the masters here as masters according to the flesh. And when a slave heard that, he would think of several things. Number one, he would realize that he has another master. These men are your masters according to the flesh, but you also have another master, and that master is mentioned in all five verses here. And he's called in verse 9, your master in heaven. But I think this expression, masters according to the flesh, also would remind the slave that this setup is only temporary. 
He is your master according to the flesh. He is only your master in this life, not in the next. And this phrase would also remind them that they were slaves only in respect to their physical lives. Spiritually, they were free. And Paul made a great statement in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 20. He says, were you called while a slave? Don't worry about it. If you have the opportunity to get free, take your freedom. But he says, those who were called in the Lord while a slave are the Lord's free men. If you're a slave and you become a Christian, you get the opportunity to be free, take it. But don't worry about it. Because if you are a slave, it's only physical. You are free in the Lord. And I think this phrase also reminds us that they are masters according to the flesh. That is, they are masters only in that one realm. When it came to the spiritual realm, they were no longer your master. The master and a slave were both Christians. When they came to church together, those distinctions fell by the wayside. And that's why Paul said in Galatians 3.28, there is neither slave nor free man, for you are all one in Christ. And I'm sure there were some interesting scenarios in the early church where a slave and a master were both, both Christians and they worshiped together. And when they came into the church, perhaps the slave was an elder and the master was not. And so he was to be submissive to that slave in the context of the church. Or the slave was the teacher with the gift of teaching and the master was the student listening to his teaching. And so he reminds us that this distinction, master-slave, only applies to the flesh, to the physical realm. But he tells us that in the workplace... Our responsibility is to obey. You say, but you don't know my boss. He's an ogre. Well, Paul speaks about that in First Peter chapter two, or Peter does in First Peter chapter two. Look over at that verse for a minute. First Peter chapter two and verse eighteen. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect. Notice, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. Be submissive to your masters. If you've got a good master, fine. If you don't, be submissive anyway. So coming back to Ephesians chapter 6, the responsibility of slaves is to obey. But Paul doesn't leave it at that. He goes on to explain how you are to obey and why you are to obey. He tells us the manner and the motive of our obedience. First of all, he tells us the manner, and I can pick out four things in these verses about how slaves are to obey their masters. First of all, he tells slaves to obey respectfully. That's in verse 5. Slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh with fear and trembling. You say, that's the way everybody obeys my boss because he's scary. Well, that's not really the idea behind this phrase. It's not the idea of being scared. It's the idea of having respect for, of realizing the significance of the job that you are doing. And that attitude of fear and trembling is not based on the intimidation factor of your boss. It's really based on the last few words we see in verse 5, and that is that you are really doing it as to Christ. You see, when the Lord gives someone a task, it ought to be done with fear and trembling. That's true in relation to our personal spiritual life. Paul said in Philippians 2.12, work out your salvation, how? With fear and trembling. 
It should be true when the Lord gives you a spiritual task to do. As Paul said in 1 Corinthians 2-3, he said, And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. But it also applies to our work assignments. We're to obey the boss with fear and trembling. We're to obey respectfully, taking that task seriously. Second thing he tells us about the manner of our obedience is that it's to be conscientiously. Notice again verse 5. He says, in the sincerity of your heart. That is, in the singleness of your heart. With an undivided mind. You are not to obey half-heartedly. You're to give 100% 60 minutes for an hour's pay. Now, some Christians witness at work, and that's good if you have the kind of job that allows for that. I worked one summer in Washington, D.C. for Davy Tree Company, and I planted bushes and, and uh, threw mulch off of trucks and spread mulch, and we had a lot of travel time between jobs, and it was the kind of job where you could talk while you worked. And I got the opportunity to share Christ with several of my fellow workers. That's okay if your job allows for that. But if you have to stop working in order to do something even as noble as witnessing, it's wrong. Because you're cheating your employer when you do that. If you don't get anything else out of this morning's message, get this. The most spiritual thing you can do at work is work. Because what you do in your workplace, the way you work, is really the platform from which you get the privilege to witness for Christ. If you're a shoddy worker and you're careless and you're complaining and you're sloughing off all the time, nobody's going to listen to you anyway. In fact, look over at Titus chapter 2 and verse 9. Titus chapter 2 and verse 9, Paul addresses the same issue. He says, urge bond slaves to be subject to their own masters in everything, to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, that is, not taking material things, money things, or time, but showing all good faith. Why? That they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. By the way you perform at work, you either adorn the doctrine of Christ or you distract from it. You say, but I don't have to worry about my testimony at work because my boss is already a believer. Or my boss owes me special treatment because he's my brother in Christ. Well, Paul didn't think that way. Let me show you another verse. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 1. You didn't know the Bible had so much to say about work, did you? 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 1. Let all who are under the yoke as slaves regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and our doctrine may not be spoken against. And let those who have believers as their masters not be disrespectful to them, because they are brethren, but let them serve them all the more, because those who partake of the benefit are believers and beloved. If your boss is a Christian, then if anything, you ought to be motivated to work harder so that he might benefit further from your work. 
Well, there's a third reason that Paul gives in how we are to obey, and that is diligently. Look at verse 6 of chapter 6 of Ephesians. Not by way of eye service. Now, that word eye service is only used this one time and in Colossians 3 in the New Testament. And it's an interesting word because it's a word that's not found in classical Greek. Some people assume that Paul created this word. And it's a very descriptive word, eye service. Eye service means when you've got one eye on your work and one eye on the boss. And when he's not looking, you loaf. Eye service is when you work hard when you know you're being watched. And Paul says that we are not to work that way. The Christian standard of performance should never vary according to the geographic proximity of the foreman. I ought to be one who works hard all the time, whether the boss is working or watching or not. I'm to work diligently. And then fourthly, he says we're to work enthusiastically. And that we see at the beginning of verse 7. He says, with goodwill, render service. That word goodwill means cheerfully, joyfully. It's not enough to give my boss an outward display of compliance while inwardly I'm seething with resentment. I am to do what he says, and I am to do so joyfully, enthusiastically. You say, well, how can a slave obey his master respectfully and conscientiously and diligently, and on top of it all, be enthusiastic? Well, Paul tells us that when he gives us the motive. And what's interesting here is that Paul not only tells us what to do, he tells us why to do it. When you get saved, God doesn't change your social order. If you were a slave and you got saved, next morning you woke up, you were still a slave. God doesn't give us a new organization. What God does give us is a new motivation. You're still a slave, but He gives you a new motivation to obey your master. And in these same verses, there are three motivations that Paul gives for obeying your master. The first is, you are really serving the Lord. Notice verse 5. Slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling in the sincerity of your heart as to Christ. Verse 6. Not by way of eye service as men pleasers, but as slaves of Christ. Verse 7. With goodwill render service as to the Lord and not to men. You see, I have to realize that it's not just my boss that I'm serving. Beyond him, I am serving my master in heaven. I am serving the Lord. And that's the key to contentment as a worker. It explains how you can serve in fear and trembling. It explains how you can put up with even a cruel master because you see beyond him to the Lord. It explains how you can put up with a lowly job. Because when you're serving the Lord, there's no such thing as a lowly job. When I was in Bible college, I worked my way through the first year by working as a janitor in the school. And so my job, as low person on the janitor rung, was to clean the toilets throughout the building. And when the burner, where they burned up the trash, got too much soot inside, they sent me in there to clean it out. And so I was convinced that I had the worst job, the lowest job you can imagine. But it's a challenge, even with a difficult job, to say, this is not a lowly job because I'm doing this 
for the Lord. And this explains also how we can obey without worrying about eye service. Because as Paul says here, we're not in it to please men, we're servants of Christ. And Christ never goes on vacation. He never leaves the room. He sees everything. And so he motivates me to be faithful always. First motive, you're really serving the Lord. Second motive, it's the will of God. Notice verse 6 at the end. He says, doing the will of God from the heart. Now don't miss that. What is the will of God? The will of God is obeying your master in the flesh. You say, you mean sweeping floors can be the will of God? Pumping gas can be the will of God? Flipping hamburgers can be the will of God? Yes. You see, too often as Christians, we are guilty of dividing our lives into Christian activities and secular activities. God never does that. Sometimes people say, well, how are you doing in your Christian life? As if you have another one. See, you are a Christian seven days a week. It encompasses all of your relationships and all of your activities. And if God has given you a job, it is His will that you do it with fear and trembling, with singleness of mind, seeking to please God as the servant of Christ. That's His will for you when you're at work. And then the third motive, he says, you will be rewarded by the Lord. Notice verse 8. Knowing that whatever good thing each one does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether slave or free. As a Christian, my ultimate motivation is not the paycheck that I get at the end of the week. Because I'm the servant of Christ. I'm doing the will of God, and He will reward me. And that's the incentive that allows me to work even when the boss isn't looking. Because my ultimate goal is the reward that God will give me. And I think probably the the greatest test of a Christian's maturity is what they do when no one else is looking. And I am convinced that God is most pleased by the right behavior that we do when only He sees. He says in Matthew chapter 6, that we are to give alms in secret. Why? Because your Father who sees in secret will reward you. He says that you're to pray in your closet where no one else sees because your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And He says that when you fast, you're to anoint your head and wash your face so no one else knows you're fasting because your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And I am convinced that God is most pleased by those things that we do that no one else knows about except Him because that's the real expression of faith. Say, God, I'm trusting you that you're going to reward me for this even when no one else is applauding. Notice that last phrase in verse 8. He adds this phrase, whether slave or free. And he reminds the slave, when it comes to time for rewards, everyone is going to stand before the Lord on the basis of what he has done, not on the basis of his earthly position. God's not going to be concerned about whether you were blue-collar or white-collar when you stand before him. It's not going to make any difference to the Lord. And so he reminds the slave here, your status on this earth is temporary. When you stand before the Lord, those status symbols are going to be gone. So the manner in which slaves are to obey is respectfully, 
conscientiously, diligently, and enthusiastically. The motive is you are really serving Christ, it's the will of God, and you will be rewarded by the Lord. Now let's see what he has to say to masters. That's in verse 9. And masters do the same things to them. Masters, you just do the same things to them. Now what does that mean? Well, if you hope to receive respect, give it. If you hope to receive service, do it. If you want to get the best out of your employees, then give them the best. That's what he's saying. Do the same things to them. That's really an expression of what Jesus said in Matthew 7, 12, which we call the golden rule. Whatever you want others to do for you, do it for them. Do the same thing. And that's right in line with Jesus' teaching on leadership in Matthew 20, 25. He said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. It is not so among you, but whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. And so it shouldn't surprise us here when Paul addresses masters that he tells them to do the same thing. And then just as he did with slaves, he also tells them how and why they're to do this. He gives the manner and the motive. First of all, he gives the manner. That's in verse 9 in the middle. He says, And masters do the same things to them and give up threatening. Now, in the Roman Empire, they were convinced that the only way to get a slave to do anything was to threaten him. You had to have a whip in your hand. He was an inhuman tool. And so what you did was you gave him orders and then you threatened him about what you were going to do if he didn't accomplish his orders. And Paul says, I don't want you to be that kind of master. I don't want you to tell your slaves what to do in a negative way. I want you to lead them in a positive way. See, the negative way is to threaten. The positive way is to do for them what you want them to do for you. And that's what Paul is calling them to just as parents in verse 4 are not to provoke their children to wrath, masters are not to threaten their slaves. There's to be a relationship. That's expressed in the little book of Philemon where Paul writes to a man by the name of Philemon who was a master. And he had a slave named Onesimus who ran away. And Paul ran into Onesimus and he was sending Onesimus back home. And he said, when Onesimus gets back home, verse 16, I want you to receive him no longer as a slave, but more than a slave as a beloved brother. I want you to have a relationship with him, not just master-slave, but a relationship that goes beyond threatening. And that's the manner in which slaves or masters are to deal with their slaves. And then secondly, he gives the motive in this verse, and there are two of them. The first is, you both have the same master, verse 9. He said, knowing that both your master, their master and yours is in heaven. The major reason that a master would abuse his power was because he was under the false impression that he was the final authority. And Paul says, you better know something. You have a master in heaven, which really puts you and your servant in the same boat because you both have that master in heaven. So if you have given the, been given the privilege of having authority here on the earth, you better use that authority to serve your master in heaven. And then the second motive he gives is that he 
Your master in heaven is an impartial judge. Last phrase in verse 9. And there is no partiality with him. And I think he adds that because masters were used to receiving special treatment. People always flattered them and fawned over them. And so Paul adds these words to remind them that when they get to heaven, they're not going to get that kind of special treatment. In the parallel account in Colossians 3.25, he says this, For he who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong which he has done, and that without partiality. God is not going to be impressed by your social standing. He's not going to say, My, you were an executive vice president. It's not going to matter to God. And so he says, we're all going to stand there before the Lord. And in that day, many slaves are going to receive greater rewards than their masters. There's no partiality with God. And so Paul's exhortation to masters is to do the same things for them. Serve them as you would have them serve you. The manner, giving up threatening. The motive, because you've got the same master in heaven... And he shows no partiality. Now, the one thing that ought to be clear from this passage this morning is that Christianity isn't reserved for Sunday morning. It's seven days a week. And Christianity is not reserved for the church building. It's to impact the workplace. And whether you're an employer or an employee here this morning, our prayer should be, that as we go out into this week, we might be God's servant doing God's work in the workplace.